and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are continuing um, a trend this week of counter-programming against the latest political controversies of the day, um, although we might get into one or two um, if uh, the spirit moves. We are also having a first-time guest, someone I've been following for a very long time, who I, if you had asked me a week ago, do you know him, I would have said, yeah, and then realized... Like it turns out, we were just talking. I think we only met once in a in a Fox green room back in the Pleistocene era. Um, but he's got, um, and also because I am I am nothing if not a river to my people. Um, uh, we got a lot of people asking for more uh, discussion of Israel and um, and overall Hebraic content. Um, we thought that that bringing John Pedorts on here would would satisfy that craving, but apparently. It only aroused the appetite without putting it to bed. So we're going to go all in today uh, with Oren Kessler. Oren is a journalist and political analyst based in Tel Aviv. That's right, Tel Aviv. He has served as a deputy director of research for research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's a research fellow at the, or was a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, Arab Affairs correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. And he's got um, a... Uh, New book that is getting all sorts of praise from from uh, uh, serious students of uh, Israeli history called Palestine 1936, The Great Revolt and the Start of the uh, Israeli-Arab Conflict, or words to that effect. I'll be corrected in a moment. I'm doing that from memory. <laughs> Oren Kessler, I got to stop speaking. Welcome to The Remnant. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Longtime listeners know my standard first question for people with new books. Uh is because uh, it's the question I like to get when I'm on a book tour. What's your book about? Well, first, let me correct you on the uh, subtitle. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, Palestine 1936, The Great Revolt and the Roots of the Middle East Conflict. There you go. Uh, what is my book about? My book is about a formative, seminal, yet forgotten chapter in the history of Israel and the history of the Middle East conflict, which for some strange reason has been uh, severely underexplored, underinvestigated, and I think uh, sheds a lot of light on the current uh, situation. I want to get to the, the term Middle East concept in a little bit because I have a peeve about it. But um, so what was the what was the great what was the great revolt? Um, and you're you know, obviously you're right. You, you literally wrote the book on the subject, but um, uh What's wrong with starting the history of what you call the Middle East conflict um, with the Balfour Declaration and, you know, the end of the Ottoman Empire and, and that whole period? Why fast forward 15 years or so um, uh, to this well-known, but I, 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 from the reviews I've read and from your, your own book, uh, weirdly ignored um, uh, sort of touchstone in the history of, of Israel and, and the Palestinian territories? Uh, so I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that, um, you know, we have to throw away everything that's, that's been written about the conflict or that somehow 1948 is not a, a, a pivotal, extremely important year, or 1917 for that matter, the year of, of the Balfour Declaration, in which Britain declared its support for a Jewish national home in Palestine. Uh, but all those have been, have been written about to death. 
this whole this conflict has arguably been written about uh, to death. And for some reason, I had the uh, masochistic urge to uh, to write yet another book on this particular conflict. And I uh, lit upon this subject, which um, again, sort of inexplicably. Uh, hasn't gotten its due in English uh, for a general audience, at least. There have been a couple of very academic studies. There have been a couple of books in Hebrew. Um, but uh, again, I think both for 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 the history of the state of Israel, for the history of the Palestinians, uh, and for the history of the conflict, so many aspects of the conflict, as we know it today, took shape uh, during this period of 1936 to 1939, ending just before the start of the Second World War. I love talking about historiography, but let's actually actually talk about the history. What was the Great Revolt? What caused it? Well, as as you mentioned, of course, the uh, the, the Balfour Declaration came about in 1917, and then we should we should we I, I I normally don't do this, and I normally don't I try not to John Padoritz all over people and say explain that and that kind of thing. But it is in my experience, there are a lot of people who don't know what the Balfour Declaration was, all that kind of thing. So let's let's. You're, you're teaching the first 10 minutes of an introductory college class about this stuff. Uh, like, let's just sort of define our terms so people can stick, stick with us. Absolutely. I'll, I'll try to do it in, in five minutes. The, the modern day Zionist movement really begins in the late 19th century. The first wave of immigration, Jewish immigration to this land is in, is in the 1880s with the pogroms in Russia. Uh, 1897, a man named Theodore Herzl, the great visionary of Zionism, holds the first Zionist Congress. Fast forward 20 years to, this, to the First World War, and in 1917, November 2nd, 1917, before Britain even controls this land, but is on the cusp of conquering it, it hopes, it issues this declaration, the Balfour Declaration, declaring its support for a Jewish national home in Palestine. And there has been raucous debate, of course, at the time and even since about what that means. What is a Jewish national home? Is that a Jewish state? What does it mean to be in Palestine? Is that all of Palestine, part of Palestine? What are the borders of Palestine? Uh, and there was a certain amount of deliberate ambiguity there. But nonetheless, uh, that declaration was made the year after the war ends. And um, in the few years after that, in the 1919, 1920, 1921, uh, the newly formed League of Nations grants uh, a mandate over Palestine to Britain. And this was the result of some very effective Zionist lobbying and a few uh, well-placed friends in Britain and elsewhere. Um, of course, the U.S. wasn't part of the League of Nations, as we know, even though it was the brainchild of Woodrow Wilson. It didn't get the two-thirds uh, of the Senate necessary. So the U.S. was not part of the League of Nations, nor was it part of the Versailles Treaty against Germany. I think we often forget. Uh, so the League of Nations grants the mandate over Palestine to Britain, which had issued this Balfour Declaration. And the, and the mandate text enshrines the Balfour Declaration within it. Even in the preamble of the text, it repeats the wording of the Balfour Declaration, supporting a Jewish national home uh, in Palestine with the understanding that nothing shall be done to infringe upon the religious or civil rights of non-Jewish inhabitants, namely the Arab inhabitants. But note that there's nothing said there about any collective rights or political rights. These are religious and civil rights. So Britain's uh, military occupation of Palestine shifts to a civilian occupation, uh, a civilian, uh, civilian control. And, uh, and the Jews start immigrating here in steadily larger numbers. And they make 
tremendous strides throughout the 1920s, uh, demographically, economically. Just for clarity's sake, because as you know, there are a lot of people who think that Jews, the, the Jews of Israel were immigrants for all immigrants from Europe. It, it, I'm right that in Jerusalem, Jews were a numerical minor, majority um, or close to, close to, you correct me on it, but it's the surrounding more rural areas and smaller towns and centers where Arabs were in a majority. And it's the immigrants who are coming in who start filling in those places that creates these conflicts. That's right. The Jerusalem had a Jewish majority since probably the mid 19th century. And those were, that was, that, those were obviously mostly religious Jews, both Ashkenazi or European Jews and, and Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews with, with roots in the Middle East. So, but, but still the country as a whole had an overwhelming Arab majority. Certainly in this period, it was, it was overwhelmingly an, an, an Arab majority. Yeah. Uh, and so they're, they're making strides throughout the 20s. They're converting this, what was a backwater of the Ottoman Empire to uh, a corner of the developed world. And then uh, there are a couple of outbursts of violence. Famously in 1929, there was something called the Hebron Massacre in which uh, in Hebron, in what is now the West Bank and a couple of other places, uh, 133 Jews were killed in over a few days of, of terrorism. Uh, but what I argue in this book is that uh, it was only in 1936 that what had previously been riots and terrorism became a nationalist concerted uprising and, and intifada, as we say, these days. And I, and I would just also add that, you know, in 1933, Hitler comes to power and various other anti-Semitic movements are gaining power in Europe, in Poland, in Hungary, Romania. And that steady rise in the Jew, in Jewish immigrants is just turbocharged. And the, uh, the, the Jewish population of this country uh, doubles over four years between 1931 and 1935. In 1935, you have 60,000 Jews immigrating here in a single year. And it's that year that, um, and this brings us right to the revolt, uh, but it's that year when the Jews are nearly, uh, are, are nearly a third of the population of the country that uh, a man, a preacher in Haifa by the name of Izzadin al-Qassam, whose name may be, may be familiar to some of your listeners, uh, the, the, the Hamas's armed wing these days uh, and its rockets are, 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 bear the name of this particular jihadist preacher. Uh, Izzadin al-Qassam, who had been preaching jihad against Britain and against the Jews, um, is killed uh, in the forest of northern Palestine, now northern Israel, by the British, and that kind of lights the fuse of the revolt that begins in April 1936. Okay, I, I want to get back to the revolt in a second, but uh, a terminology thing again. As you know, because you're on Twitter, it takes about every 24 to 72 hours for someone to find an old map, either from British colonial map or ancient Roman map that says Palestine. And then they'll say, see, this proves it was always Palestine. It was always for the Palestinians. And so the, just the name, the term Palestine, right? It, it's, is it like the Levant? You, you use the word country a couple times, right? But it wasn't really ever a country pro prior to, well, prior to more recently, right? Um, and so how should we understand that ancient historical term and how did the, the local Arabs decide to glom onto that term rather than any one of a dozen other terms you could think of? Because some, as I know from, from your writing, 
some of the early nationalist movement was more of a sort of, it was sort of like the Arab version of pan-Slavism where like you had the Palestinian, quote-unquote Palestinians, wanting to join up with greater Syria. So like, just give us a sense of how people should, how you think people should think about it or how, what the different perspectives are on it. I don't, I'm not asking you to make an argument one way or the other, just for historical clarification. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, the, 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 the Palestine, the, the Palestine in my title, I think for, for certain people these days, particularly those who, who consider themselves uh, friends of Israel, the word, the, the P word can be uh, a bit loaded, even, even triggering to some people. Um, there's, there's certainly no political or polemical intent with me uh, using that word in the title. It's simply what this 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 land it was the name of this land at the time in english and that's what the, the name that the jews used as well of course in hebrew they would say the land of israel eretz israel uh, but in english the official name was british mandate palestine and and the jews who lived here would have, were typically known as palestinian jews and the arabs who lived here were typically known as palestinian arabs the, the word palestinian on itself wouldn't have meant very much uh, at the time um and in terms of um in terms of how the, and, and, and you're right that a, a word like land is probably more applicable than country in this case. But if we're, if we're talking about what the Arabs of this land, how they would have identified in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, I think it's, it's true to say that had the, Jew, had the Zionist movement never got off the ground, this land would have been part of Syria. It would have been, for centuries, it was considered part of, it was considered southern Syria. Yeah, some of the earliest sort of post-World War I delegations of Arabs from this land were, were, were joint Syrian kind of Palestinian delegations. Uh, it's really, in many ways, the Palestinian Arab movement develops as a mirror image of Zionism. And even throughout the 30s, there's a lot of talk in uh, among Arab, among. Palestinian Arab leaders of a kind of a greater Syrian federation or a greater Arab federation of which uh, this should be part. So basically, it's the British who, in coming here at the end of the war, kind of revive this this term Palestine. Um, for, I'm, not, I'm not saying it wasn't in use before, but it kind of reappears on the political map uh, in this period during and after the First World War. I have, I, have, I have more meta questions like that we can get to down the road. Okay, let's get back to the, um, uh, the actual narrative um, of the Arab revolt. What precipitated, what, what caused it, um, and um, why does it matter so much? So, uh, as I mentioned, in December 1935, uh, Isadine al-Qassam is, is, is killed by the British, and a few months later, in April 1936, some of his followers ambush two Jews on, on the road uh, near Nablus in what is now the West Bank um, and, uh, and murder them. And then four days after that, we have what the press at the time called the Bloody Day in Jaffa, in which 16 Jews were killed in various incidents in Jaffa and South Tel Aviv. Uh, and that very same day, this is April 19th, 1936, that very same day, uh, Arab notables in Nablus which, has, which then as now is a, a center of Palestinian Arab nationalism. Uh, the Arab notables there declare a strike. And a few days after that, uh, the Mufti sort of gloms on to this movement and places himself at the top of it. He announces something called the Arab Higher Committee, of which naturally he is the head. And he says, he declares that 
the strike, the boycott of the Jewish economy and the British economy will continue until three demands are met, namely a complete stoppage to Jewish immigration, a ban on land sales, because very many prominent and wealthy Arabs were selling land to Jews, even while they railed against it in public. Uh, and the third demand was the establishment of a, an assembly, a legislature that would accurately reflect the demographics of the country, which were still at least two-thirds Arab. Uh, and this, uh, this strike, which lasted six months, and to this day is one of the longest general strikes in history, uh, this strike bore fruit because the British sent over uh, a royal commission acting in the name of the very short-lived King Edward VIII, who famously abdicated shortly thereafter to marry the American divorcee, Wallace Simpson. Uh, and uh, and the, this, this commission of inquiry uh, was sent here to examine grievances, any, uh, particularly Arab grievances, but any grievances that the Jews may have had as well. Uh, and so in many, in many ways, the, 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 the Arabs of Palestine were extremely proud that their economic self-sacrifice had, uh, had achieved this tangible result. But the Mufti, uh, even in this early phase, this was kind of his, his finest hour, uh, the Mufti. Of course, the, the, the Mufti would later be, be, be famous for, for allying with Hitler during the Second World War. But at this point, he is the undisputed leader of the Arabs of Palestine. And in, in fact, he had been appointed to that position by the British, uh, not just by the British, but by the Jewish Zionist High Commissioner of Palestine, a, a man named Herbert Samuel, uh, in the early 20s. So the British had, had vested him uh, with tremendous power as the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and the head of the Supreme Muslim Council. Uh, but uh, in this period, he is the undisputed leader of Palestine's Arabs and Muslims, rich and poor, urban and rural, um, rival families, even to an extent Muslim and Christian, uh, line up behind his leadership. And then later on in the revolt, uh, things fall apart in many ways, and the Arab community devolves into a kind of paroxysm of, of infighting and score settling, much of which is driven by the Mufti himself, even though he, uh, he ends up fleeing the country at a certain point because he becomes a wanted man, uh, because it becomes fairly clear to everyone that he's actually pulling the strings of the revolt. So within the first year, year and a half of the revolt, he uh, falls out of the good graces of the British and has to flee. Um, so let's, let's talk about this. So I'm torn about these kinds of things because, as you know, I'm a supporter of Israel, but at the same time, um, I have an abiding sympathy for the Palestinians and the um, and their plight, you know, and also just the absolutely terrible leadership they've had in, over many generations. Um, lots of poor decisions, you know. I mean, just since you brought it up, a case in point is making alliances with Hitler is not a great play. Um, but uh, put all that aside, um, so. Tell me more about the, like, so I, I you know, I, I keep going back in my mind to these arguments about Ukraine. Well, people say, well, Ukraine was never its own country and all that kind of stuff. That's a fraught conversation, which we don't have to get in the weeds on. Um, but part of my shorthand for ending that conversation is they think they're a nation now. And that matters, right? When you, you can develop a sense of national identity um, that, uh, that can take precedence over a lot of historical arguments. Um, this is not science. It has to do with the uh, animal spirits of the human heart 
and all the rest. And so was there a moment prior to this, do you think, where, I mean, as you say, it probably would have been part of greater Syria. Was, was there a moment where this Palestinian identity really fused, where all of a sudden people stopped saying, I'm an Arab or I'm a Muslim or I'm a Southern Syrian, and they said, I'm a Palestinian, and Palestinian meant an Arab in those land, Arab Muslim in those lands. Or I guess it doesn't have to be an Arab Muslim, right? Because there are also Arab Christians in those lands, but an, an, a non-Jew in that area. I think this, in many ways, is that moment. This is, I argue, that this is the, the crucible in which in which Palestinian identity really came together. I don't think they necessarily would have said, I'm a Palestinian, full stop. They probably would have said, I'm a Palestinian Arab. But this is absolutely a, a formative, I argue, the formative event in, in, in Palestinian history up until this point. And, and one other thing I should say is that this, this royal commission uh, famously, well, it puts together a 400 page uh, report, which if anyone has two or three weeks free, they should absolutely read because it's a, it's, it's a great read, but it's, it's remembered by history for its last 10 or 15 pages in which it recommends partitioning the land, partitioning the land between the Jordan river and the Mediterranean into two States, Jewish and Arab. And this is really the first two state solution. If you like, this is also the first time that the world power with the most influence over this land, namely Britain in this, in this case, uh, puts the notion of a Jewish state on the, on the international agenda. Uh, and the Jews debate it. There's, there's a heated debate within the Zionist movement, but the leaders thereof, namely David Ben-Gurion, who will later be Israel's first prime minister, and Chaim Weizmann, who's the head of the World Zionist Organization, uh, they come out in favor, while the Mufti... Uh, rejects rejects this uh, this plan, and it's at this point. And in fact, he what he, what his what his rejection says is that Palestine will 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 be part of an Arab federation and will remain forever Arab. That's his that's his response. So even there, you see that there's still uh, there's still this idea that that an Arab Palestine will be part of a greater uh, Arab federation in the region. And it's at that point um, that. Uh, that the Mufti rejects the plan. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, the governor of Galilee, who's a fascinating man by the name of Louis Andrews, he's a, a Christian Zionist, uh, good Hebrew speaker, good Arabic speaker. Um, he's assassinated on his 41st birthday as he's going to church in Nazareth. And then the revolt begins anew. And it enters a much bloodier phase in which the British exercise some very heavy-handed counterinsurgency measures, uh, many of which recall some of the more controversial measures that the IDF takes these days. This is the birth of, of home demolitions in this country. The British demolished 2,000 homes in this period, oftentimes in, in acts of collective, collective punishment. They'll, they'll demolish dozens of homes in a village uh, if there's an attack in that vicinity, for example. Uh, administrative detention, so detention without specific charges. Uh, you know, curfews, uh, checkpoints. There's even a, a security barrier built along the border with Lebanon because so much militant activity is coming down from Lebanon, where where the Mufti has now uh, taken up residence, uh, and which of course has echoes with the security barrier in the West Bank today. So, so many of these counterinsurgency methods that we know today were inherited by the state of Israel from the British, and even the legal basis thereof was uh, was inherited by the Israeli 
legal system. And 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 just one more point I'd, I'd, I'd like to make in terms of the effects of this revolt. It's this is an Arab revolt, of course, but I argue that it's as much a Jewish story as as an Arab one. And this is really the period in which the Jews become an armed force to be reckoned with. This is the birth of the Jewish army, uh, the birth of the IDF, because the British were already into 1938 at this point. We've got the, we've got the war clouds looming over Europe. We've got the Munich crisis, and the British are unable to wrestle this revolt to the ground, and they're unable to send large numbers of troops from Europe because they're worried that war will break out at any moment. So what do they do? They arm and train the Jews in massive numbers. They accede to a long-standing Jewish demand uh, to arm them. And so they provide weapons and training to, to something like 15 or 20,000 Jews during this revolt uh, who are nominally part of the Palestine police and answerable to the British, but really uh, answer to the Haganah, which is the main uh, pre-state Jewish armed force of this period. And this is when the Haganah goes from, you know, a glorified night watchman's unit to the, the, the seed of a, of a Jewish army. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, it, 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 it's a bad analogy, but it's a little, but like you could see what was coming 10 years later in the Spanish civil war. Right. It's just one of these things that sort of is a, you know, in, in sort of fractal formation and starts small and just spirals to the same pattern, but much larger and becomes more definitive. Help me out on this. Like, I, I know European history of nationalism stuff pretty well. I mean, um, uh, certainly better than normal people. Um, but, um, and one of the things I, I struggle just to get a grasp on in, in Arab Muslim thinking at the time, or even today, is, you know, nationalism has a weirder vibe in Arab intellectual history, in part because Islam kind of doesn't like nationalism <laughs> and um, at least doesn't think about it in the same way that got developed over time in Europe. Um, the So, you know, you got to remember, at that time, there are a lot of countries in Europe that had only recently actually become nations. Um, I mean, the Risorgimento, whatever you call it, the, the, the unification of Italy, I think is in the 1861, something like that. Uh, prior to that, no one talked about Italy being a country. Um, Germany, you know, with Prussia actually getting all those other, you know, princeling states together, um, hadn't become its own country till fairly recently. This whole concept of nationalism was really in the air and in the, in the water all over the place. Was the Mufti's argument? primarily a nationalist argument or was it primarily a religious argument and the Arabs in the re in the wider Arab region were, were, was it both? I'm sure it was both and not either or, but was the, was the passion about it? Um, you know, in the breakup of the Ottoman empire, you have the, this, it's, it's a delayed response to like the same thing that had been going on with the fall of the Austrian Hungarian empire and all these kinds of things was the, was the passion in it, a, a nationalist passion, or was it a religious passion? I think in the case of the Mufti, they were very much intertwined. There were there were religious Islamic overtones uh, to the to the rhetoric quite explicitly, and I think that's why a lot of the Christian Arab population 
in this land had mixed feelings about the Mufti. On the one hand, they were not Zionist by any stretch for the most part. On the other hand, you know, some of the, I, I uncovered a, a document, a letter from the editor of Philistine, which was the main Arabic newspaper in Jaffa, uh, a letter to a guy named Joseph Levy, who was the uh, New York Times correspondent here. He was Jewish, but he was anti-Zionist and he was an Arabic speaker in which uh, this editor, who's a Christian, says, look, there's not a, there's not a, an, an Arab, uh, a respectable Arab in this country who wants to be ruled by Jews, but there's also not an Arab in this country who wants to be ruled by terrorists. Talking, and he's, he's talking about the Mufti. Uh, so I think a lot of Christian Arabs probably, at the risk of speculating, may have even preferred that the mandate continued indefinitely, kind of as a protection. Um, that is not to say there weren't, there weren't nationalist Christians or even Christians who supported the Mufti. There were, uh, one of whom was named George Antonius. And he was originally, he was a Christian Arab from Lebanon originally, but long based in Jerusalem. And he was an intellectual and a Cambridge man. And in 1938, he wrote a book in English called The Arab Awakening, which is a seminal text in the study of Arab nationalism. And in it, he really introduces this concept of Arab nationalism to the West, that there is such a thing because most people in the West weren't really aware of it. And even in Arab circles, it was mostly the preserve of elite, often Western educated Arabs at this point. I think the average Arabic speaking resident of this land probably still would have identified more as a Muslim or as a Christian than the, a member of the Arab nation. But this was, uh, this was a movement that was that was gaining steam, at least in elite circles. And Antonio's, uh, Antonius's book um, really influenced the British as they, um, as they first recommended partitioning the land and then quite quickly uh, decided against it and started reneging both on that Peel partition plan and on the Balfour Declaration itself. So you said that this line about how I don't want to be ruled by terrorists or by Jews, was that a conventionally anti-Semitic sentiment, or was it bound up in the idea that these are these are foreign intruders, immigrants coming in, rich immigrants coming in, pushing us around? You know, uh, you know, gentrifying is probably the wrong term, but you know, coming in and buying up our land and bringing their foreign ways with them. You know, there's a fine line there, but there is a difference between you know, because you, you you could also imagine someone saying, "I don't want to be." ruled by Turks, right? That's not necessarily, you know, a bigotry towards the Turkic people's, you know, qua bigotry. It's just, these are people that don't belong here and I don't want to be ruled by them. So what was the real role in anti-Semitism? Because by the time the Mufti allies with Hitler, you just get this huge bilge flood of, of garbage European anti-Semitism that kind of poisons the ability to peel these threads apart. In the case of the Mufti, I think it's it's hard to deny that he was profoundly anti-Semitic, and that had a that that that's had an extremely negative impact on on Palestinian society and on Israeli-Palestinian relations ever since. But I think uh, when you and that was a kind of religious extremist, xenophobic uh, anti-Semitism that you know even the Muftis allies tended to describe him as, as extremist and as intransigent. Um, but, uh, when you, when you, when you take a, a quote like that, like the one I, 
quoted earlier from from Yusuf Hanna, from that journalist, I, I don't think even I don't think it's uh, shocking that a, a member of a certain a certain nation, a certain uh, linguistic group, would not take too kindly to seeing their country transformed. I think even friends of Israel can can uh, understand that kind of sentiment. It's not necessarily anti-Semitic. There were certainly anti- some anti-Semitic currents in Arab society, but there's. Uh, I, I think it's simply too far to say that any Arab who opposed the Zionist enterprise was anti-Semitic. I I I just. Um, it's 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 not hard to understand that when a when a country is transformed demographically and in every other way uh, over the matter of over the matter of a few years that there would be opposition to that. Yeah, and also just I mean the way human beings work is that when you're opposed to people in a real tribal sense, you grab the nearest weapon to hand. In you know, in, not just in terms of weapons, but in terms of weaponized ideas and. Um, uh, and the problem is, is that over time, people come to be, people embrace certain ideas for pretextual, strategic reasons, and then they internalize them, and and then the next generation is actually grown up believing them because that's what they're taught. And so the chicken or the egg thing kind of doesn't matter at a certain point. I think there there were a lot of Arabs who would have been perfectly content to have the Jews remain as a ten percent minority because they're you know, they were clearly good for the economy and they were draining swamps and they were bringing in investment. Uh, it was always then as now the, 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 it was a demographic question. And in that sense, I think it's always been sort of a zero sum game of who's the majority, who's got 51%. Um, and that's, uh, that's in many ways, that's what precipitated the revolt. The Jews were 30, 35, nearly 40%. And it was fairly evident that if things kept going that way, soon they'd be 50% and more. I don't, I don't want to, negate or, or push or undermine your thesis, but let's go back to the uh, the other sort of starting point, the Balfour Declaration and the uh, fall of the Ottoman Empire. Just again, as a factual or informational matter, I've heard, I've heard so many contradictory things about the status of Jews in the Ottoman Empire. And I think part of the problem is that probably because it's not just the Ottoman Empire, it's like when and where in the Ottoman Empire. Um, but I've heard People say that Jews were treated very well in the Ottoman Empire. I've heard people say that Jews were not treated very well in the Ottoman Empire. I've heard and everything in between. What was the general policy of the Ottoman Empire towards Jews, at least in Palestine, in the, you pick the time frame, the decades, years, generation uh, prior to, uh, you know, the rise of Zionism or, the, the, or even the Arab revolt? I would quote the late great, Middle East scholar Bernard Lewis, who said that the, the you know the status of the Jews in the Middle East was never as bad. It never got as bad as it did in Europe, but also never got as good. When it was when it was bad, it wasn't quite as bad. But when it was good, it wasn't quite as good. So, in terms of the Zionist enterprise, the Ottomans basically, you know, they, they, they would they were they were there was no shortage of Ottoman officials who would accept bribes in order to allow the Jews to set up a factory or buy some land. But in general, government policy was, was opposed uh, to the whole thing. And, and this is something I tell my Israeli friends who uh, I've, I've noticed there, there is a certain resentment in this country, even today towards the British. And that's, I think, partly understandable. If you, if you look at the white paper of 1939, which perhaps we can get to, but uh, you know, when the Jews needed a sanctuary more than anywhere else, 
Britain essentially slammed the door closed or, or very much narrowed it. Uh, and then after the world, Second World War, after the Holocaust, the British dithered for several years before, before um, allowing some, some Jews here in any significant numbers. Uh, and I can understand that. But, you know, I also tell my Israeli friends that without the British mandate, uh, this country wouldn't exist. Without the, without the opportunities afforded by the British, which, of course, the Jews had to rise to, they had to, make, they had to rise to the occasion. But without the opportunities afforded by the mandate, things would have continued as they had in the Ottoman years, which is just official obstruction at every turn, uh, very hard to get anything done, uh, large-scale immigration, almost impossible, really. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's it, it, in certain ways, there, probably the average British official was somewhat cool to the whole Zionist enterprise, and yet the British, with their, uh, with their sense of fair play, uh, I was actually, and this rather caught my attention as I was, I was doing the research in this book. Uh, there were, I, I tended to find that the average British official, while somewhat lukewarm uh, to the Zionist or even cool to the Zionist enterprise, tended to just get along with the work. And the idea was we, to, we made this Balfour Declaration. That's our word, and we have to stick with it, whether we like it or not. So, what is it about the white paper that you wanted to get to before I? I hit you with more filling the blanks of Jonah's ignorance question. <laughs> well, it's it's one of the most consequential pieces of paper, certainly in Jewish history or even in world history. This is May 1939. War is just a few months away. And uh, the colonial secretary, a 37-year-old guy by the name of Malcolm McDonald. Um, well, let's not forget that the prime minister at the time is Neville Chamberlain. And... Uh, appeasement wasn't just the term used by people like Winston Churchill, who opposed the policy. It was essentially the official term used by Chamberlain and his government, both for for fascist for Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, but it also extended to the Middle East. And the British felt that they could not, with with world war apparently on the horizon, they couldn't afford to have Arab and Muslim opinion against them, not just in Palestine, but across the empire and across the world. They were particularly worried about India with its large Muslim population. That, of course, that, that includes the Pakistan of today with its large Muslim population. And so, and it's all there in the, in the cabinet papers uh, that they, they talk about appeasing Arab and Muslim opinion and going as far as they possibly can towards Palestinian and Arab demands. And they, they call a conference in, in London because the, the British have an endless lust for committees and conferences and commissions. They call a conference in London at St. James's Palace. They invite the Zionist leaders. They invite leading Arabs, including, for the first time, leading Arabs from surrounding states. So this is also the period in which Palestine becomes a regional or even international issue. Until then, the British had refused to allow the, the, the leaders of neighboring Arab states at the table. They did so for the Jews. They allowed international Jewry a seat at the table on, on matters of Palestine, but they hadn't allowed Arabs from, from beyond Palestine a seat at the table. But now they're determined to appease Arab opinion. They allow leaders of Iraq and Yemen and various other Syria. Uh, and, uh, and they pass this white paper, which goes uh, very far towards Arab demands. And it cuts down Jewish immigration to a grand total of 75,000 over five years. And as I mentioned, in 1935, 
6,000 Jews had come in just a single year. So this is a huge reduction in Jewish immigration. And after those five years... Sorry, 6,000 in a single year or 60,000? 60, 60,000. Okay. 60,000, sorry. Uh, And after those five years, any further immigration would be contingent on Arab consent. And it was evident to all that the Arabs, that Arab consent would not be forthcoming. So basically, uh, they closed the door after that 75,000 figure to Arab, to Jewish immigration, and said that after that point, uh, Palestine would become an independent state. They didn't say independent Arab state, but if you have a strong Arab majority, it was evident that it was going to be a de facto Arab state. So this is right on the cusp of the Second World War. And while it's probably an exaggeration to say that this document it is an exaggeration to say that this document doomed 6 million Jews to the, to the gas chambers. I think it's fair to say that hundreds of thousands of Jews could have received sanctuary uh, here if not for this particular piece of, uh, of, of policymaking. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. I've made the analogy. It's like all these analogies. It's fraught. But um, for years, the Arab leaders... I would argue, have used the plight of the Palestinians as sort of a, like, they're Sudeten Germans. It really wasn't their plight. It was a way to focus domestic populations at outrages outside their borders and take their eyes off of their own domestic problems. And um, I'm not saying all the Arab leaders are Hitler or anything like that, but it's just this is, this is sort of the, a similar tactic. Um, is... is 1939 with the white paper, the moment when, uh, is that the year where the Arab leaders in other states start seeing the plight of Palestinian Arabs as something that their domestic populations can be rallied around? Or does it happen earlier or later? I think it happens uh, starting, I think it happens starting in uh, 1936, 37, and then really comes to fruition in this conference that I mentioned in, in 1939, and in large part facilitated by the British. The British allowed uh, the other Arab leaders uh, to come to the table. And I should mention that uh, the Mufti rejected the white paper, perhaps predictably, but he went, he was, there were, there were I would say even most prominent uh, Arab leaders in Palestine supported the white paper. They weren't thrilled that this country was, that this land was uh, one third Jewish. They weren't, they wanted a complete stoppage of immigration and not that 75,000 figure. But they realized that this was, that these were very major concessions and probably the best they could do in the circumstances. The Mufti in his Lebanese exile uh, rejected it. And, um, and I think Palestinians today, you mentioned that the Palestinians have been cursed with quite negative leadership then as as now, arguably. Uh, I think Palestinians of today uh, recognize that uh, that was a huge mistake to reject that that white paper. Even Rashid Khalidi, the, the Palestinian-American professor at Columbia, has referred to this 
decision by the Mufti is a huge mistake. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting that the, the Mufti, there are no schools named after the Mufti. There are no roads named after the Mufti, you know, soccer stadiums. He's kind of uh, silenced and marginalized in Palestinian history. And we may like to think that's because he uh, disgraced the Palestinian cause by aligning with Hitler. But unfortunately, uh, that wasn't enough to knock him from his pedestal at the head of the Palestinian Arab national movement. It was only 1948 with the, the route, the defeat and dispersal of the Palestinians that the Mufti really became damaged goods to a wide swath of Palestinians and then was, was basically, uh, you know, f- forgotten. Can you sort of just clarify a little bit the, um, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when a lot of the right was much more focused on its you know, civilizational clash with Islam and Islamism and all of these sorts of things, you would hear and read, and occasionally I would write about the prevalence of sort of Nazi-style propaganda and textbooks and political cartoons and that kind of thing. Was that a direct descendant of, I mean, we're talking about the legacy of the Mufti. But for the Mufti, would that stuff still be around? Or is it, or is that a good example of what I was talking about earlier of how when you're deeply opposed to somebody else, you just grab the nearest weapon to hand and you know that that stuff really pisses off Jews, right? <laughs> and that it's um, and it's just useful sort of uh, trolling and boob bait and, you know, that kind of thing. Is it, is it a real intellectual legacy of the Muf- it, or cultural legacy of the Muftis that, but for his role, you wouldn't have so much of this Nazi stuff filter in over the generations? Or do you think it would have come in anyway? I think it's a fascinating counterfactual to imagine what would have happened had the British appointed someone else other than the Mufti, uh, as, as grand, other than Haj Amin al-Husseini to be Grand Mufti and head of the Supreme Muslim Council. Uh, things could have been very, very different. Uh, you can only, we can only imagine what would have happened had the Arab leadership accepted, the Palestinian Arab leadership accepted the Peel Partition Plan. There would have been, uh, there would have been no Palestinian Nakba. There would have been no displacement of Palestinians. The Jews would have had a small foothold in which to, in which to accept the, the persecuted Jews of, of Europe. And what would have happened had the leader of the Palestinians in 1939 accepted the white paper. Um, so, uh, so I, it's, it's, it's difficult to, we'll never know. We'll never know. But I think it's, it's, it, it is fair to say that that legacy of the Mufti has been a, a, a purely negative one. And, uh, look, I think there would have been a certain amount of support for Nazi Germany, I, I hate to say it, among Palestinians, uh, who, no matter who was the leader, because the, Germ- the Germans were arrayed against the British and against the Jews, who were the two main enemies of, of, of the Arabs of this country. But uh, would it have been such fulsome support as, as the Mufti expressed? I suspect maybe not. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, in, in fairness to that point, um, uh, you know, there were Irish people <laughs> who were rooting for Hitler for very similar reasons. Um, you know, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend stuff is very common all over the place. You know, and, and um, what was Churchill said about, you know, 
allying with Stalin was, you know, I aligned with Satan himself, you know, and, uh, okay. So I want to go back to that thing I teased at the beginning. Um, I have a peeve that I think is a bipartisan aimed peeve because friends of Israel, which I consider you one and enemies of Israel and use the term Middle East conflict all of the time. Books are called the Middle East conflict readers and textbooks and college and high school have, you know, referred to the Middle East conflict and it refers singularly to the Arab Israeli or the Israeli Palestine conflict. And I get it. I think part of this is sort of a journalistic thing where you just get tired of using the same phrases for things. And this is another phrase that then took on a life of its own. So I don't, I'm not saying it's necessarily sinister, but I do think it's unfortunate because it, it's, it's just bad analogy Wednesday, but like, you know, there are a lot of very strange Marxists and Canadians who don't like calling America, America, North America, because Canada's America too. And Mexico's America too. Right. You know, and, um, there have been a great many, you know, this far better than I do conflicts in the middle East that have jack all to do with Israel. But when you, and I, I think some of this is, is sort of like, in the, during the Cold War, the arms control guys and the Sovietologists thought that their thing was the most important thing in the world, and they elevated the importance of it. There are people who work on Israel stuff who want to make the Israel-Palestine conflict the most important thing in the world, in part because the dudes in their Rolodexes and their contacts in Arab governments have said for the last 40, 50 years, you can't get anything out of this region until we solve this problem which it turned out was a lie. Um, and if you had just, if we would use the, when you, so when you say Middle East conflict, we make it sound like, but for Israel, the Middle East would just be firing on all cylinders right now, right? There we know Saudi, Yemen, Iran kind of stuff going on. And, um, and so that's my, my gripe with the term uh, stated kind of sloppily. What is your response to that, sir? How dare you, sir? <laughs> I, uh, I understand your gripe. And even though I, I placed the words, uh, the Middle East conflict in my subtitle, I share, uh, that pet peeve. Um, you know, I think part of it, as you mentioned, is probably the fact that Middle East is only three syllables and Israeli Palestinian is like eight, uh, Mm -hmm. or at least Israeli Arab is what five. Of course, it's, it's ridiculous that, uh, that this should be the Middle East conflict, I actually, in my, in my, in the introduction to my book, I, I have a, a section in which I briefly lament the fact that this is uh, considered quote, the Middle East conflict. And yet again, uh, you know, you got to think about SEO and keywords and it's, it's right there. <laughs> it's right there in my subtitle. No, no, I, 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 I'm with you. And again, I, I conceded that it's partly a journalistic conceit. It's like, um, you know, the Jewish state, a lot of reporters use it because they just don't want to write Israel over right. and over again, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and I think part of the problem I have to admit, like I, I was told by a good friend of mine who worked as a journalist in a, in, in Latin America for a while, that what he was struck by most about the Spanish language, at least in Latin America, was that there was no penalty or punishment from the reader to repeat the same word a lot. Like we went down the road and on that road, we saw some other things on the road. (sighs) 
And in English, you would say, I went down that road and further on on the path, right. we saw, you know, you wouldn't want to say road all over the time. <laughs> and so it, part of it is just, I think, an epiphenomenal problem of, of English where you need more adjectives because you don't want r- word repetition. <laughs> but I admit that this is a bit of a, a digression. Um, so, uh, what, so, you know, this is, uh, I like histories that, that unearth new moments that, that matter um, and reframe things. And I've often argued that, uh, you know, the present changes the future and the past change, it influences the present. But what people usually don't really notice is that, uh, or what doesn't get enough attention is the present often changes the past. And the example I often use, um, there's a great quote about this from R.G. Collinsworth that I can't remember, but the, the example I always use is that for most of my life, or at least the first half of my life, um, everyone agreed that 1917 was this hugely momentous date in human history, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution and all that kind of stuff, World War I. And then uh, after 9-11, all of us, and after the, well, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1917 kind of receded as an important date. And then after 9-11, you know, what was it, 1922, when the Wahhabis took over in Saudi Arabia, that all of a sudden seemed like a vastly more important date because all of a sudden there was this different narrative of history that everybody was focusing on. I think it's, it's interesting to see how as we move through time into the future, new periods become more important and old periods become less important for unintent, unanticipated and unintended ways. And so, you know, what is it about this moment that made you want to write this book and how do people both in Israel and in, in Palestine and the broader Middle East, how do they look at the great revolt at least prior to your book coming out? How does it remembered? I think, I think in sort of the Palestinian consciousness, the, the heroes and the symbols of this revolt are very much present. There are still folk songs that celebrate this revolt there are still uh, schools that are named after some some of the militant leaders of this revolt, but it's also it doesn't have the central place in Pal- in the Palestinian consciousness as 1948 does. 1948 is a lot uh, easier to grapple with, as it were. 1948 Palestinians view 1948 as a as the moment in which they were victimized. They fell victim to to the Zionist movement, to imperialism, to they were betrayed by the Arab states who didn't defeat the Jews. Whereas 1936 to 39 requires a lot more soul searching. There's you, you, it's not easy to explain to yourself as an Arab why so much Arab blood was shed by by fellow Arabs. So I think that's part of the reason it's been somewhat marginalized in the in the Palestinian discourse. On the Israeli side, it's a, it's a little bit puzzling that it's uh, that it's been similarly marginalized. This is a this is a this is a period of tremendous Zionist achievements and Ben Gurion who, again, at this time was, was the undisputed leader of the Jews of Palestine, of, of the land of Israel. And Gurion was an expert at, at, at turning adversity into advantage. So even despite the tremendous pain and cost that this revolt inflicted, in which 500 Jews were killed and 1,000 were wounded, these are massive numbers that we wouldn't see numbers like this until the Second Intifada. Despite all of that, uh, he was able to make tremendous uh, gains, as we mentioned, this is the first time a Jewish state is mentioned. This is, you know, he sees the revolt. He, uh, he, he took advantage of the revolt to kind of 
solidify a self-sufficient Jewish economy, which had been a long-term goal of his, for example. Um, so this is a period of tremendous gains for the Zion for 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 the Zionist movement, and I, I kind of speculate in the intro, in the intro to my book that maybe part of the reason it's somewhat marginalized is that uh, you know the 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 Israeli or Zionist narrative is one of self determination that uh, of of Jewish self determination, and uh, we don't we citizens of Israel don't like to uh, it's it's kind of a blip in the narrative arc. Uh, to to have a large scale concerted uprising by another people against that movement, which we consider or Israelis consider to be a, a positive one of, of self determination, but it's it's speculation. I don't I don't quite know why uh, why this con this this revolt has been uh, has been sidelined both by Israelis and and and, and Palestinians. It's, it is a little bit puzzling to me. I could we just do a little Israeli punditry moment here absolutely what is your take what the hell's going on with the supreme court thing like give me your i mean pod gave me his i have my own views i I don't want to like uh bias the 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 question any further than that like what the hell's going on yeah i i I heard uh john podhoritz on your podcast i have a lot of respect for john podhoritz i i disagree i think it's a it's a big deal i think it's it's quite worrisome it's it's a it's a drastic overhaul of the legal system, of the entire judicial system, everything from how judges are appointed to judicial review, whether there is any judicial review in any meaningful sense. Um, certain things that's, that may seem kind of wonky, but are very important, such as who appoints the legal advisors in various government ministries. Is it technocrats? Is it outside uh, advisors? Or is it the politicians themselves? Um it's, uh, again, without getting too wonky about it, it's a drastic overhaul. And it's one that essentially, in my view, eliminates uh, or nearly eliminates the Supreme Court and the judicial system at large as, uh, as a check on, uh, on Parliament. This is a country uh, that has one chamber of, of uh as, as a unicameral legislature, the Knesset, uh, the government, the governing coalition comes from the Knesset. And so really, at the end of the day, you have the Knesset and then you have the judicial system. Those are the only checks and balances you have, really. So what this judicial revolution is doing is, in my view, uh, eliminating uh, one branch of government effectively and, and leaving us with only one. Just for edification of listeners, what the reform would basically do is basically take away the concept of judicial review, right? Um, yeah, among among other things, uh, there's a whole there's this whole pro the whole process of selecting judges here is a lot different from the state from in the states. Um, as it stands now, it's a mix of representatives of uh, the bar association, ju- current uh, j- Supreme Court justices, and also members of Knesset, but it's a majority, the the majority of that commission is actually lawyers and judges. That's five out of the nine members. And then four members of this commission are members of Knesset. Again, it's pretty, it's a little bit in the weeds, but um, what this, this, this proposal, among other things, would take the lawyers uh, out of, of the mix and have much more um, representation by 
parliament and it would it would allow it would take away the ability of uh, this country also doesn't have a constitution this is perhaps one of the more negative legacies that this country adopted from the british is that there's this is one of very few countries in the world i understand it's the uk new zealand and israel that don't have constitutions in the entire in the entire world so all the, all that there is here in the way of constitution is what's called basic laws so these are laws that have been passed that have been granted some sort of extra status uh, as a sort of quasi-constitution. And basically, part of what this overhaul does is it, um, it takes away the court's opinion, the, court, the court's ability to, uh, to review basic laws and to, re- to review laws, to determine that certain laws violate basic laws. Uh, it essentially leaves the Supreme Court fairly toothless. So I'm I'm more inclined to agree with you than with Pod, and Pod can yell at me later. Uh, but and I, I do think that so at the American Enterprise Institute, which is you know my one of my homes, um, we're doing a lot of work behind the scenes on trying to illuminate, explicate, um, uh, the and investigate the difference between democracy and republic. And, um, you know, the concept, it gets very thorny and it's very difficult to be pithy about it, but basically Republic emphasizes more these sort of, um, the role of, 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 of institutions to protect broader Liberty without, in, in terms of being responsible stewards rather than just simply, uh, um, servants of a constituency, right? And um, it seems to me that the lack of Republican, the the thing that is is very frustrating to me is that when people talk about, and Kevin Williamson just wrote a piece about this for us um, this week, um, the talking point is that this is a threat to democracy, this is end of democracy, all these kinds of things, when in reality the problem with it is that it's, providing too much democracy, right? It's, it's elevating democracy. It's, 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 it's taking away one of the only checks your cockamamie system has against raw majoritarianism. And, um, and, and it just shows you how poorly thought through these concepts are, not just in America, but, but in Israel, you know, what, you know, this is sort of in my ballywick. I am, I've always said, if I have to pick the elements of the American constitutional order, democracy is not off the list, but it's not number one. It's those institutions enshrined in the Bill of Rights, right, which are often very anti-majoritarian, which is why they're enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Um, You know, the individual right to worship and speech and all these kinds of things can't be voted away by majorities, at least not very easily. And the fact that Israel has this radical majoritarian. And I mean, it doesn't even have a bicameral parliament, which I think is nuts. Um, uh, it seems to me like, and I, this is where I think pod was right. And you get at a little bit, this in, in your book as well, is that Israel really starts as an army and then kind of gets a government later. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, armies aren't the best, institutions from which democracy, democratic governments should be born. Um, And yet the result was that you actually ended up with this hyper-democratic form of government. Is there 
any talk about like, okay, this Supreme Court thing is freaking people out. Maybe we should actually just sit down and talk about like more systemic reforms about how the system is run. Because I, on the flip side, I am very sympathetic to critics of the Israeli Supreme Court. It is wildly living constitutionalist and where it just sort of invents things because there is no constitution for it to adhere to. Um, and so I just think you guys should just go back to the drawing board and come up with just like a normal, like just a normal kind of government for Pete's sake. And um, is there any kind of talk about that kind of thing? Or are we just going to see this, see where it goes? And then maybe people will say, okay, now we need to figure something out because this is a mess. I, I think you're, I think you're right in that um, proponents of this judicial reform, this judicial overhaul say, Hey, this is, this is, this is democracy. This is directly implementing the people's will. And if you, again, if you look at democracy, if you go straight to the Greek word democracy, rule of the people, okay, you could you can make that argument. But as you say, this is, this is, this is the tyranny of the majority. This is part of this, um, part of this judicial overhaul allows for a simple majority of the Knesset. So that's 61 out of 120 seats to overturn previous Supreme Court rulings, okay, to retroactively overturn a Supreme Court ruling. Now, the current governing coalition is 64 seats. So you could even have a few dissidents within the governing coalition, and you could still overturn years of Supreme Court uh, precedents. That said, uh, I do think, as you mentioned, that there's widespread support in this country for some sort of reform of the Supreme Court. There is a feeling that since the 1990s, in the 1990s, there was something called the judicial revolution in this country in which the Supreme Court or, and or the high court, it actually functions in both uh, capacities, became much more activist. And I think there is, it's definitely a majority, probably a strong majority of this country that feels that something needs to give, something needs to change. But I also think there's a strong majority, and polls bear this out, that there's a strong majority of this country that thinks this is going, th this proposed overhaul is going too fast, it's going too far. The polls now show that if we had elections tomorrow, uh, this government wouldn't be voted in. The op the the opposition would be voted in. Uh, so it's um, there's a definite feeling that uh, that this is being rushed through without any real kind of consensus um, or buy-in from from anybody uh, on the opposition. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's a very Pat Moynihan point, but like, you just don't do major structural reforms to your society based upon a narrow very narrow majority that is very, I don't know what the right term is, 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 is not necessarily representative of the broader society or even the sort of historical society. I mean, like I'm a Chesterton guy and Chesterton, you know, used to say that democracy, I mean, that, that tradition is democracy for the dead. You know, that there's a certain sort of conception that you have some kind of who we are that is transcendent of a given electoral distribution. And the fact that you've got, like, I, I generally support Likud and, and, and those kinds of guys in, in Israeli politics, the send I understand Israeli politics, which often is very similar to late night Japanese game shows. But um, uh, the, 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 the sort of extreme right, as they're called, kind of parts of the coalition, 
these are not the people, no one, you know, these are people not elected to sort of say, okay, that the whole Supreme Court thing we've been doing for most of our lives, yeah, we're not going to do that thing anymore. And you need buy-in. Otherwise, it's, what's going to happen is you're going to have a repeat, a, a, a sort of a similar thing that we get here, which is you get small majorities. They are convinced they're going to lose power, so they want to make massive, they want to swing for the fences and make massive changes, which automatically invites a backlash so that the other party comes in and they do the same thing. And you get this seesaw where Congress is going back and forth between both parties, the presidency, because nobody wants to actually build an enduring majority where they get 70% of a loaf um, because they gave 30% to the other side to co-opt them into something that is more sustainable and durable. And, and Israel with, again, your cockamamie system, uh, uh, look, it's democratic and that matters and that's important and it's decent and all that kind of thing. I mean, morally decent for the most part, but it's, it's no way to run a railroad, dude. You know, you need some checks and balances. You need to read some Montesquieu over there. And, um, I just think it's weird. Uh, but I'm going to get so much grief from so many people about all this. So I'll just stop on that. I I actually, if I could just, I, you, you, you mentioned that, uh, or you hinted that this that it may be such a cockamamie system because this this country began more as an army than a than a, than a country. But it initially the, the plan was to have a constitution. That's what Ben Gurion wanted, uh, the first prime minister of Israel. But it was really it was really the religious secular divide that prevented a constitution. There were all kinds of questions about should should the constitution mention god should it mention religion should it mention jewish law what kind of education should children have um and there were so many things that needed to be sorted out in this country in those early years massive waves of immigration settlement economics etc cetera, etc cetera, that they kind of put it off and they've and this the leaders of this country have been putting it off for nearly 75 years yeah i mean i, I mean like you know there are a thousand versions of this joke is like, you know, you get five Jews together, you get eight opinions. Um, I cannot imagine what a Jewish, particularly an Israeli Jewish constitutional convention would be like. I mean, it would be just like this massive deli where everybody's sending back soup and saying, you call this lean and it would be a nightmare. Can I, this is again, one of these personal edification questions, because I don't know next time I'm going to have a, you know, Israeli historian type guy on, on this podcast. Uh, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, always used to say, and my dad said something similar. They both grew up in the Bronx, actually went to the same high school, not at the same time. But Ben always used to say, you know, when I was a kid, if you saw someone in a yarmulke or kippah, uh, uh, you didn't say, oh, they're more Jewish than me. You, you assumed they were socialists. <laughs> and, um, and that role of Zionism, right? It's like, I mean... I know a little bit about Jabotinsky and all of those kinds of things, but not enough to like speak without getting into lots of trouble. Um, how much was Zionism wrapped up in other notions of, of socialism uh, and of obviously of nationalism, right? Zionism was just the sort of the Jewish theological term for, you know, this idea of nationalism, which was all over the place in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, but Israel was founded as a very socialist country. Um, just tell me a little bit about like the relationship between socialism and, and Zionism. And were there a lot of free market Zionists somewhere that just lost the fight for the history books? 
Uh, Jabotinsky was a, a free market Zionist um, and an arch secularist, per, per, possibly an atheist, probably an atheist, but uh, not totally clear. Um, so yeah, Jabotinsky was the the, the ideological uh, leader of and political leader of uh, of right wing Zionism. Um, he didn't have much time for religion. Uh, ben Gurion, who kind of emerged victorious, was a socialist. Uh, and also a secularist. Um, it was kind of an instrumental socialism. It was this wasn't uh, you know the communist international. This was uh, this was Ben Gurion, who was an extraordinarily pragmatic man, you know, the, a mind like a calculator. Uh, he he viewed socialism as the best vessel to advance the project, to settle the country, um, to make sure that the Jews weren't all packed into Tel Aviv, but rather were spread around the country. Um, that they engaged in agriculture and didn't have to depend on uh, Arab farmers or anybody else to feed themselves. This was how he. This is how he. The vessel he saw for creating a nation that that um, that that would that would feed itself and would rule itself and would be able to protect its borders, um, would employ itself as well. Strong labor unions. So that and this this Ben Gurion socialist labor Zionist uh, vision or sensibility was the one that built up many of the state institutions. Part of the thing, one of the arguments I make in this book is that in 1939, when the, when the white paper comes, comes about and the world war begins, by that point, the Jews had, had established their, their military, economic, territorial, demographic basis and springboard for the country that they would win in war 10, 10 years on. And many, most of those institutions were built by Ben-Gurion and the labor Zionist establishment. And really, that's the, that's the, the philosophy that governed this country. And this is the, the, the group and the movement that governed this country for, the, for its first nearly 30 years of existence. It's only in 1977, in which uh, Menachem Begin and the Likud come to power, that they lose power for the first time. And Israel hasn't really been the same ever since. There's been since then there have been there have been right wing governments, left wing governments, but the left's monopoly on power uh, was broken back then in, in 1977. So um, yeah, and now we're seeing neither the Jabotinskyite vision nor the Ben Gurion vision. Now it's a much more religious country. I think it's safe to say than it was even 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a different country. It's a more religious, a more right-wing country, certainly than the one that uh, my parents grew up in, and certainly than the one that Ben-Gurion founded in 1948. I, I, I could go on with questions, but we're, we've gone a bit long here. And um, I really, uh, you know, the, as we like to say around here, this podcast moves books. Um, I highly, highly recommend um, you uh, uh, listeners who are interested in the history of Israel and, this whole, and the Middle East conflict, uh, check out the book. Again, thank you very much to Oren Kessler for coming on. I will probably have you back on to pick up where we left off on the rank Israeli punditry part. Um, I'd love to. Uh, down the road. And, uh, and thanks again. Thank you so much, Jonah. I really, really enjoyed it. Okay, so Oren has left the studio, and um, it was great to have him on. Um, I learned a lot. I got to ask a lot of my I feel stupid for not knowing questions, although I have more. Um, and... Uh, Actually, you know, that would not be a bad sort of occasional podcast series um, for The Remnant or something. Uh, just basically send in all your I feel stupid for not knowing questions and then we'll look them up and, and, and 
or ask various people. I think it's a, it has to be a good regular column now that I think about it. Not by me, but like we could have a regular feature just sort of um, getting into that kind of thing where we contact experts. But now I am just rambling. Um, it's been a very messed up morning. Um, I've been, I'm really glad to be back, but I'm also just digging out with dealing with all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, as I mentioned on the Dispatch Live last night and on CNN, I can now tell people that I was um, subpoenaed by Dominion. Um, that was one of the things I kept cryptically referring to on this podcast about things going on that I cannot talk about. I still can't talk about the actual deposition or what I said, um, but it was and remains one of the, I mean, my mom passing was obviously top of the list by a wide margin, but dealing with all of the issues involved legally, financially, professionally, ethically um, with this Dominion thing has been one of the, 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 most colossal ass aches of the last year or two. Um, and at some point I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk more about it on the dispatch pod, but on, on the solo pod. Um, anyway, so, uh, I really, really highly recommend, um, people pick up Palestine, 1936, the great revolt and the roots of the middle East conflict. Um, uh, I just been poking around with it. I've been, you know, I've been reading like, 10 different things for different reasons. And so I, ha I really wish I could just sit down and read it straight through. I plan on doing that. But um, there are people on all sides of these issues um, that really respect the book and say that he's really done something new and novel and important in terms of the historiography of the period. It really is a sort of ignored um, um, or uh, underappreciated part of Israel, Palestine, Middle East history. Um, you know, if you go and look at his website, uh, he's got rave blurbs from Benny Morris, big, serious Israeli historian. Um, uh, he's got one from Muhammad Dajani, who's a Palestinian scholar and peace activist and Michael Oren, another Israeli historian and former Israeli ambassador. Uh, the review in the wall street journal was very helpful. Um, anyway, uh, highly recommend it. want to thank him for coming on. And uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. And again, thanks to the guys who subbed for me last week. And uh, if you could become a member of the Dispatch community and subscribe, that would be awesome. Uh, it, you know, it really lets us do more and more exciting things. And if you think you've gotten value out of this podcast um, and you're one of these people who, you know, fast forward through the commercials, which I don't blame you. Um, Maybe, you know, one way that you can sort of feel like you've, you've paid for some of the content either on this, of this podcast, advisory opinions or any of the others, um, is by becoming a subscriber today. Uh, it supports us. It helps us. Um, it, it, it validates a model that we think is supremely important these days. Um, and I'll talk probably a little bit more about that when I talk about the Fox Dominion stuff, um, in the solo and beyond that, um, Thanks again to everybody. I'm sorry if I sound manic. It's because I'm crazy overtired. Um, and I will see you next time. Lonajon, the podcast. There was a huge controversy about, because Adam had said, you can't actually, like the, the phrase, no, you won't, doesn't exist in Hebrew. <laughs>
Uh, right, um, right, right. And I got into a big argument with Adam saying, there's no way Jewish mothers don't say, no, you won't <laughs> to their kids in some context. Right. Um, and huh. so, and then re- listeners wrote in and blah, 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 blah. You, it doesn't have to be literal. Uh, let me think. Let me think. No, no, you won't. This is a podcast. Uh, I have to agree with Adam. No, you won't. I can't think of a literal translation. You could say, you say you will not. This is a podcast. You'd have to say like, you will not do that. Or, uh, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Like in Hebrew, um, if someone said, I'm going to take out my genitals right now. Right on this podcast, right. you know, like presumably there's some version of a language that says, no, you won't. And then just add the pot word podcast. Uh, it'd have to be a, a, if, a liberal if they, translation. If they said it in a synagogue, people would say, no, you won't. This is a synagogue, right? You know, I mean, yeah. like, there has to be language for this. Uh, Adam's going to love this, that we're, that you're getting his back on this. Uh, yeah. You'd have to say like, uh, that's not true. You could say that's not true. It's not like the cops are going to come and get us for getting this little, uh, yeah. Yeah.